Well, well, well. Look who's back on the podcast. After after weeks, years, weeks, eons of sickness, multiple universes, pestilence, and pox. Here we are, fully vaccinated. (laughs) I assume I'm assuming your mom was anti-vax or something because you've been so sick. Uh, Father Harrison. I'm still coughing. I'm still coughing. I know, I know. But uh, we have to have you back, because if you don't come yeah. back, then uh, the people will riot. Welcome back yeah. to Clerically Speaking. Thank you. It's, oh, it feels good to be back. You know what, to be honest, it, it's good to have you back, because speaking with that layperson for an entire podcast was <laughs> exhausting. Here's the good news for you, you though. Okay? okay. At least you don't have to go to purgatory anymore. Right. I got to offer up all that time. And for us who had to listen to a layperson on the podcast, oh, it was rough. We've, we've lost a lot of our purgatory time now. <laughs> uh, poor producer Nick. So I felt bad for him because he, <laughs> he tried his darndest. He, he did a fine job. He did a fine job. He did. He did a fine uh, job. But it was just funny because everyone was complaining. And it's because they love you, Father Harrison. It's not because they hate <laughs> producer Nick. <laughs> but they were just so <laughs> outraged that you weren't on the podcast. They, uh, <laughs> So it, was, it's 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 good to be back. It 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 was I was out for I've still got a dry hack from that I got a I got a chest infection and so I wasn't ready to record last week. Question. Yes. What was it like listening to your podcast without you on it? It was really weird. <laughs> it it felt like a different podcast, right? Yeah. It, it had our format and everything and like you said Dick did a great job. It was awesome. I actually had a really good stuff in, in Presbyteral ex, or Nick Exhortations or whatever he called it or the Nick Extravaganza. Was that it? Oh wait, no, it was the producer Nick not it wasn't Extravaganza. It was cuz he, he recorded a bumper with Extravaganza. Yeah. No, you have to change it. Spectacular. Ah, spectacular. Nick, okay. Yeah, producer Nick, spectacular. He did a very good job. He had some really good content. It was just, it was really weird. It's like, I should be on there. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it feels good to be back. Well, you're on here now. You're yeah. here. I'm here. Producer yeah. Nick is editing this audio back where it's supposed to be. That makes this <laughs> clerically speaking. Welcome. Welcome. I'm Father Anthony Sharapa. And I'm Father Harrison. So, uh, I, I wanted to talk about this last week, but I got I had a really cool experience uh, a couple weeks ago. Okay. I got to go to the NHL All-Star Game. Oh, oh that's that's the hockey. Yes, that's hockey for mm. those who, who don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I went to San Jose. It was gloriously sunny the entire time I was there, which Blech. was really nice. Blech. And uh, uh, got it. one of my kind of bucket list items was I got to see the Stanley Cup. And in fact, I would actually blame the Stanley Cup for why I got sick. Uh, go on. Because I touched it. You know, mm-hmm. some people are like, you shouldn't touch the cup unless your team's won the cup. Okay. I don't care. I, I'm, <laughs> we're not superstitious because we're Catholic. Right? Exactly. Because so, Catholics are never superstitious ever. Mm-hmm. Um, especially Italian Catholics. They're totally normal. <laughs> no. I'm not even going to pretend. They're super not. <laughs> I was thinking about, speaking of, um, because a lot of Italian Catholics, it becomes like this Italian Catholic magic thing. And one of my mm-hmm. favorite Italian Catholic magic things, um, which is super illegal, I'm pretty sure, don't do it, is that if there was like a bad storm, you would get your Italian Catholic grandma to grab the palm from Palm Sunday, to set it on fire, and to wave it outside at the storm to make the storm go oh, away. Oh, wow. Right? I've not heard of that one. Isn't it amazing? I love Have it. You, you've heard of the, like, if you want Italians want to sell their business, they bury a statue of St. Joseph's upside down, or if they want to sell their house or something like that? Yes, yes. 
weird stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That, who knows? Who knows how those things get started? It's so weird. It is. I, I just. Anyways. Anyways. So I touched the Stanley Cup, and everyone was saying, "Don't touch it." Not because of of jinx or superstition, but they're like, "You have no idea where that cup has been." <laughs> I don't know if you saw pictures or video last year of Ovechkin's celebrations. Oh with yeah. The cup. He's like doing. Uh, he's like drinking beer out of the cup and everything, and and I'm like, yeah, I just touched the thing that's been in places I probably don't want to know about. Mm-hmm. But so I blame touching the Stanley Cup as my uh, as the reason. I you got know, sick. that's probably it. Yeah, that's probably it. But no, I, it was a really cool time. I got to see the Stanley Cup. I got to meet a couple of hockey players at the Fan Fest, which was really neat. Mm-hmm. And watch is very interesting. So as a huge hockey fan as I am, uh, I watch the All Star Game every year, which is you know it's whatever. This is the interesting take from it all because I saw both live for the first time. The All Stars competition, in my experience now, is better to be watched at home. Mm. Oh, and the um, and the game is better to watch live. Okay, so wait, so all the like extra stuff, I have no, I have no idea what they do for All Star stuff for hockey. So on one day they do like a bunch of skill stuff like fastest skater and stuff like that and stick handling skills and hardest slap shot while then on the the next day they do an actual kind of tournament game right Mm -hmm. so I watched both and I've always found the hockey game boring at home but it was actually a lot of fun to watch live Mm -hmm. you got to see some of the great skills like I I saw some of your Pittsburgh Penguins there Sidney Crosby was there yes he is very good at the hockey Yes, he is. And Chris Letang was there, mm-hmm. who is also very good at the hockey. Yes. I was very excited to see Elias Pettersson there, who mm. has been tearing up the league as a rookie this year. And yeah, it was just, it's one of those like once in a lifetime experiences, right? Mm. So I was very lucky. I didn't, I would never have gone. I would never have paid to go uh, because it's so expensive. Sure. I was, uh, I know some friends at Upper Deck uh, Hockey Cards, and so they get tickets and stuff. So they pay, they gave me tickets for the whole weekend, which is really neat. Question. Yes. Let's say that you have a Stanley Cup for a day. I have a what for a day? A Stanley Cup. Okay. Not just a Stanley Cup, the Stanley Cup. The Stanley Cup. What it has been it? sanitized perfectly. Yes. No germs. Yeah. So you have it in your rectory. Mm-hmm. No one needs to know about this. Okay. Do you use it to celebrate Mass? <laughs> no. <laughs> interesting, interesting thing that you can't actually bring that up because... Uh, when I was in San Jose, I brought my mask kit, mm-hmm. and I realized I forgot a pack of chalice. Oh no! And the priest DM guys were trying to help me out with this. And oh yeah, we were uh, freaking Michael, out. I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Because I was like, I was like, what? I like, I was going to use a hotel glass. <laughs> we're like, no, no. But I was like, and I was like, no, I can't because I would need to bury or throw away the glass afterwards, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it can't be used for anything else after that. So what I actually ended up using was. Um, because Father Michael had hunted down a chalice for me in San Jose, but I couldn't get out there to get from the guy. So the picks I was using to hold, um, I had a large picks in there to hold Eucharistic hosts mm-hmm. that would also be a patent. And it also had a lid. Okay. And the lid was precious metal. Mm-hmm. And the lid had a, so I used the lid as a chalice. So you had like a little like thimble chalice, basically? Essentially, yeah. Because I was like, this is used for the Eucharist. It's only used for these things. Yeah. And it's precious mm-hmm. metal, which is the point. And it's not going to, and it's used always for Eucharistic stuff. So I was like, this seems to make kind of the best sense right now. So I buy it. That's, that's what I used for. So, yeah, you know, when you're traveling as a priest, just remember, 
pack your chalice, your little cha- travel chalice, because I totally forgot to. I just picked up the mask kit thinking everything was in there, and it turns out it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you so- ever had any experiences like that when you showed up somewhere for mask and you realized you didn't have everything? Uh, me personally, I have not. Um, hmm. Because I've always checked, of course, because I'm um, a good priest. So it's never been a real oh. problem for me. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> uh, I actually have another interesting... I just thought of another story around that. So when I've, I've spent some time up on Whitehorse as well, and I went to this one church. It was like this little incy-bincy church in the middle of nowhere that essentially only one family comes to for Mass when you're driving through. Huge family, like Catholic family, like seven kids and everything. They're, they're the parishioners. I show up there for, for mass. I had uh, wine with me, but I did not have any hosts because I was told that all the churches had hosts in them. And I get there and there were no hosts. Oh, no. So we hunted and hunted and we found in the back in the middle of nowhere, a little packet of old hosts. Oh, man. They were stale, but they were still valid matter. <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't like moldy or anything. No, they weren't molding, okay. and so uh, we did that. And I, another time up north too is uh, it was so cold that the wine for mass, the bottle would not open because the lid was sealed oh, shut. Oh yeah, it was mm-hmm. so cold. So someone actually had folks. Just you know, it is actually still valid matter. Mm-hmm. Someone actually had to go home and get some wine from their house. It's not preferred, but I, I look into this. I have asked around about this. That it's still I, so they brought a bottle of wine from their house. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to have like all these preservatives and stuff in the wine, right? Right. It's supposed right. to be just like wine. Yeah, but it can still be used if in absolute emergency. Sure, sure. When you're in, I've learned in the north that uh, a, there's a lot, a lot of things you have to kind of adapt a lot more when you're up north because you never know what you're gonna have and well, not have. Have I shared on the podcast the the wine slushy story? I know I tweeted about it. Mm. I'm not sure if we ever talked about it on the podcast. You might have talked about it here, but I remember you tweeting about this. Yeah, talk about it again. Why I not? have to because it's great. So. Uh, one of the parishes in my old assignment, um, it was one of those days where just like a lot of little things were just going wrong in the liturgy. Not major things, but just things just enough to irritate me. So I'm a little bit cranky. Anyway, I'm preparing the altar, preparing the gifts, do the prayer over the bread, begin to pour the wine. We have these one of those big um, gold carafes for the wine. Yeah. So I can't see what's in there, but it feels like, you know, there's wine in there. So I begin yeah. pouring the wine into the chalice and there's not a lot of wine coming out. Like it's like a, it's like a trickle, but it feels weird because the carafe feels heavy, but like, why isn't wine coming? And as soon as I'm trying to figure this out, all of a sudden this wine slush ball plops down into the chalice. Wow. Wine splashes everywhere. It's all over. It's on some of the hosts. It's all over the altar. And I, I realized in that moment what happened. Somebody had turned up the refrigerator or turned down the temperature of the refrigerator. For some reason, that's the wine was in, and the wine had frozen in there. So I have this wow. wine slush ball. And for a moment, Father Harrison, I contemplated just turning around, taking off my chasuble, taking off my stole, taking off my alb, getting into my car, and just driving into the ocean. Just I would just drive, keep going, drive in the ocean. You have to down. drive a ways to drive to the ocean. Yeah, but I, I I would have done it because I had given up on life in that very moment. <laughs> but then, uh, I, you know, but you're stuck there. Like, what do you do? Because no one else is going to fix it. This is one thing that happens in uh, parishes. No one else is going to fix it. Like, yeah. no one else. You have to take care of it. So, yeah. 
it actually wasn't that big a deal. I, I cleaned up the best I could. I went to get more wine. The poor altar servers were just sitting there or standing there, like had no idea what to do. But we got it all cleaned up. We had mass and it was fine. But um, speaking of frozen wine, there you go. That's the story. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, someone else who said mass a lot was Thomas Aquinas. Summa Theologica! Summa Theologica. Summa Theologica. You mean Summa Tweetologica. Yeah, of course I meant that, Father Harrison. Did I not say that? Nick, you should fix that to make it sound like I said it the right way. But, uh, yeah, it's time for the Summa Tweetologica. And uh, the Summa Theologica was St. Thomas's summary of theology. And the Summa Tweetologica is our summary of things we found interesting on Twitter. And first up is a tweet from at Simcha Fisher. And she says, never mind community service hours, confirmation candidates should be required to log a certain number of Eucharistic hours. 100% serious. Mm-hmm. Totally. I, I think it's, uh, I'm not against service hours, obviously, right? Right. Service is good. Right. But it should always be rooted in that relationship with Jesus Christ. Yes. And it makes you wonder, like, the whole idea behind preparation for confirmation because i think um jd i think tweeted about this said so mm-hmm. how many service hours can you make an infant do mm-hmm. or, or how many um hours in adoration should an infant do before and his right. point was like how about we just like give confirmation to babies like the yeah. the latin church used to do way back in the day and the eastern church still does yeah but what i'm getting at is service hours while good it's like, what is our, it seems like we just want to get parishioners to do things. Right. That seems to be the focus. Like we want parishioners active and activity means doing things. And a lot of the times. The thing is too, yeah. it is it makes it seem like a, if I do X, Y, and Z in my program, I get it. I get what is my, what is due to me. Right, right. right. That's, that's it removes the gift function of, of the, of the sacrament. Yeah. That's the bigger thing. You have to earn your sacraments. The sacrament mm-hmm. of confirmation is the one thing you I have graduated. To earn. I'm done. Yeah. Um, but like just the bigger thing of this idea that the perfect parish is one that's active, not necessarily, yeah. and people don't mean it, but not necessarily yeah. one that's holy. So I'm not saying yeah, service exactly. hours are bad. Um, but yeah. yeah, we don't emphasize enough the spiritual aspect in uh, preparation. Yeah. So that yeah. was good. Cool. This one is from at Mary Rizak. And she says this, guys, what are y'all's Lenten plans this year? Now, Mary, you tweeted this on February 11th. Ash Wednesday does not begin to March 6th. You should not be asking this question until at least March 5th in the afternoon. Wow. 
This is. Are, do you feel intimidated? This is the first time we've done like, like a, a a pastoral correction on the website. You just flat out said, "Hey, hey, Mary, a, your tweet is bad and your thoughts are bad." That's the Lent first time we've ever done that. No, no, no. I'm not saying it's the wrong thing to do. I'm applauding you, Father Harrison. This oh, is the okay. kind of clericalism that I missed when producer <laughs> Nick was here. I'm glad you're bringing it back and bringing it back strong. It's just let's have the way, Mary. Just like enjoy ordinary time for a bit. That being said, Father Harrison, you got any plans? <laughs> I haven't. Th- I haven't thought about it yet. I'm still. I have some ideas going around in my head. I do like uh, Sister Teresa's idea of no beef Lent. Right. So no getting into stupid arguments on Twitter. Yeah. So I do like that idea. I'm thinking. I'm thinking about some stuff around how I use Twitter a bit for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I also want to increase my adoration time and decrease my phone time my phone has just takes over my life there's actually a really neat uh, feature now on the on the new ios updates that tells you how much screen time you've you averaged each day mm-hmm. and it's scary yeah <laughs> i've noticed that too and i'm like <laughs> just turn oh that my guy, turn that guy off just go straight to denial come on now yeah i need to i need to so those are things i'm pondering i haven't really given it any serious serious thought yet though what mm-hmm. about you so i always try to do something like difficult but simple so yeah uh and something that hopefully i can keep going past lent so i try to make it like a change in lifestyle if i can uh so i think last Lent i'm gonna try to do it again is i'm only going to use my breviary book to pray the liturgy of the hours so i won't use my mm. my phone app to kind of like what you're talking about it, that, that screen time and something about mm-hmm. while the app is helpful if you need it your brain goes into like twitter mode or to video game mode or to just screen mode and it makes it mm-hmm. difficult to pray i find on the app uh, so even if you technically get it done it, it something's missing so i think yeah. one of the things i'm gonna try to do is make sure to um be more concentrated on the liturgy of the hours and by doing cool. that using the actual book. So that's that's as much as I've thought about it. Gotcha. Cool. So, hey, let's get into something controversial. Uh-oh. You ready? Okay. Um, yeah. Actually, you better be ready because you, you picked this tweet. So this is from Michael Bear at mbear1248. And uh, this gentleman ha- had a thread, uh, it was a long thread, about... Um, basically, what something we've talked about in the podcast a lot, this kind of generational divide, um, trad versus lib kind of thing, and he was putting his two cents in it. But the tweet we picked, because this one part of the thread just blew a lot of people's minds, uh, was this. Many young diocesan priests entered the seminary in late adolescence or early adulthood and have received nearly a decade of formation, largely away from the world. It has emphasized the failures of Vatican II and the need to restore a more traditional liturgy. It's. I just need a moment. You, you, you take a moment because I'll, I'll. You take your moment. You, you keep you breathing. Start. You yeah. start. You, yeah, you start. Because this is just—it's comically incorrect. Yeah. And, like, all the responses from any seminarian or young priest has have been the same. So, yeah, you do have uh, some younger guys entering seminary now, um, either Mm -hmm. college or just post-college. That's, um, you know, increasing, I think. Mm -hmm. But first of all, it is not away from the world. 
it just simply isn't like that's just not mm-hmm. how you don't go you're not tucked away in a monastery um you're on, i know one seminary that's at a monastery which would be great don't get me wrong i wish we were tucked away from the world you know that was yeah. one of the most annoying things um that was in my experience in a seminary was i was told over and over again that this is your time in the desert but it wasn't like you're out there you're a public person you're on campus um you are very much out there just as you would in any other state of life you know you you live at the seminary true but first of all you're just not tucked away from the world secondly the idea that the formation meaning what the seminary was teaching you the spiritual directors, formation advisors, classes were telling you were about the mm-hmm. failures of Vatican II and the need to restore a more traditional liturgy is completely and utterly false. Yeah. That was not the emphasis at all. I've been to every seminary in Canada. Like I've I've either spent time there or I or I went to visit friends there or whatever. Mm-hmm. Not one of them did this. Yeah. Not one of them. I we had to so when I entered seminary, I was 25. I had a degree under my belt, and I had worked for a couple of years. Yeah. When I went to seminary, I was one of the youngest guys at the seminary. Mm. Now, admittedly, in the last 10 years, you're right. It has changed a bit where you're having more guys at a younger age coming in now. But this has been normative. I mean, when we complain about guys spending 10 years in med school right out of high school, no. Would we? No, I would want them to spend time in school. Exactly. What's different between that med school and priesthood in terms of, because both have a large responsibility, both require extensive education and formation, mm-hmm. both require a radical commitment of time and energy to that formation that you can't give when you're 35 and 40. This is why, like, this is why the church has always, always resisted later vocations. Actually, for this reason, it's not, it's not opposed to it. Obviously, right. it's just like you can't be opposed to people becoming doctors later on in life. Yeah, but it doesn't happen as much. You don't have, you're, when you're, it's easier to form a guy when they're eighteen than a guy when they're twenty-eight. Sure, absolutely, one hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, and you saw that. I mean, I saw that experientially in the mm-hmm. seminary. Um, even if the younger guys were. Um, maybe more zealous and more headstrong in certain ways, they were still more over time. They were, well, I mean, ideally they had more formation to do than the older guys. Yeah. The idea is that in older vocation, you've had more time in human formation. That's yeah. why, you know, I had to spend eight years in seminary and some of uh, the older guys only had to spend six. That makes right. sense. Cause I need, I just yeah. needed more time. But I think yeah. the problem is like a gross misunderstanding of what is going on in the church right now. Yeah, um, because, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah so, I mean, uh, there were guys who were secretly practicing um, the Latin Mass because mm-hmm. if the formators found out, they were worried the formators would come down on them, mm-hmm. which the funny thing was, was at least my formators were more upset that you were doing this in secret unless that you were doing it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's what bothered them. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, we didn't receive any kind of subversive or the old rights. I learned nothing about the 1962 rights. And to yeah. be honest, I learned very little about even our current right. Uh, it yeah. was all about like uh, church father stuff and, and older mm-hmm. rights and that, at least in my formation. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So it just wasn't there. So, yeah. So I had um, my, my seminary, my theological education very much emphasized, emphasized the Second Vatican Council. Yes. It praised it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that um, it would 
I had some times where you would recognize the way the professors, it wasn't a critique against the council. It's been a critique of the lack of implementation of the council, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which I think is completely fair. Yes, agreed. Um, my classes in Revelation were heavy on De Verbum. Yeah. My class on Ecclesiology was heavy on Lumen Gentium. Yes. And these are good. And imp- and in the next podcast, we're going to talk a little bit about Lumen Gentium, actually, as part of our talk. But mm-hmm. I mean, like it's it's these these were emphasized. Uh, I had I I had my one of my pref- you know it's true that there are guys who are coming in and a react who are becoming more reactionary to what's going on in the church. This is that's not false. But for, seminary formation time is a great time to do it because when you go into seminary, you are young, you're a jerk. You're idealistic <laughs> and you think you know everything and you have a choice placed in front of you to, do you have the humility to be learned and to be formed or are you just going to come out as the same arrogant jerk that you were when you went in? Yeah. Cause if you do, you, you're not going to last because you shouldn't last because you can't be formed. Yeah. I went in totally arrogant. I thought I had all the answers Dude, and I learned I didn't. I had read good. like, I had read like three Scott Hahn books. I thought I knew everything. <laughs> I, I had read a lot of rats here by that point. <laughs> so I will. Of course you but, did. Of course you did. You know, my, my seminary, I mean, I will be honest, it, it's very much in the uh, Communio school of theology. Mm-hmm. So Balthazar, Dulubak, Ratzinger, Schindler, guys like that. It was very much our school of thought. And um, so very critical of the preconciliar church for many reasons. And rightfully so. Um, and also all these things, I'm just like, I'm reading this tweet and I'm just like, that is so false it's so 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 false yep. I, I i don't know a single seminarian i've yet to meet a single seminarian where this is the case outside of like an fssp seminary but even there i know they they learn the council yeah so, so i mean like, i think this is what it was a good example of how a lot of times dialogue on this or monologue on this works is that we have our own preconceived notions about what goes on and yeah. we assume that if this is the truth then this is why it must have happened instead of looking at the actual evidence and basing our arguments off of that. Right. And this was kind of like a, a really prime example of that, of yeah. just saying, this is how I feel. I'm going to make up mm-hmm. reasons for how I feel this or just basing your argument off of your own limited experience. And that just complicates matters. It makes people more angry on both sides. And uh, unfortunately, that's what happened with this tweet. Yeah. Cool. All right. So... Uh, my next tweet is from Father Goyo. From Father Goyo. This, yes. This is a great tweet. If you can't even say hello to your neighbor, then you might want to postpone your quote unquote missionary trip. Being good and holy starts right where you are. Hashtag just saying. Amen. Amen. I say unto you. Uh, it is a great tweet because you have a lot of people who say, oh, yeah, I'm going on this mission trip. Mm-hmm. Great, but what do you like? Why do you need to go to Mexico or to South America or wherever to do a mission trip when there are people right here to be missionaries to? Yep. I, and I think there's a few reasons for it. Like I, I think uh, I think one of them is simply it's easier to be uh, it's easier to be a missionary to people you don't know. True. Yeah. No. I mean, I mean, Jesus has as much, doesn't he? Yeah. Exactly. It's it's much harder to try and evangelize people you know and love. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's a greater risk of loss. Um, but he, and there's this whole culture around, I need to fundraise to go on this missionary trip. I'm like, why? There are people here who need to hear the gospel. Why do you need to go away? Sorry. 
yes anyways that's my two cents on that one no yeah i agree um and that's it points to a, a very difficult thing i'm realizing more and more about the church um mm-hmm. or at least about our culture in the north american church see how i was inclusive like that father harrison oh you're so you're so so inclusive even though i don't exist you included me. you know what but uh i'm feeling merciful today so cause i'm oh, just i'm you. happy to have you back so um thank you i'll entertain the idea that canada is a real place uh but we are not very good at loving people in a real way right now mm-hmm. it's very much me and my church and me and my jesus and that takes mm-hmm. a thousand different forms and it's something that you know i realize that i struggle with as well Yep, I'm calling on people to go out and to yep. evangelize and speak the faith. And like, how often do I do that outside my own parish? Right. Like, yeah, my vocation is different, but I'm still a baptized Christian. How much do I do yep. that? And how do I do that? Yep. You know? Um, exactly. So I think it points to that as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So now it's time for our Patreon pontifications. Patreon pontifications. You support us. We read your tweets. This is from at J-B-I-2-2-L-E-3. I don't know if that is, if you pronounce that, it makes a real thing. But John, that's a ridiculous handle and it's impossible to read. So I'm just going to spell it. That being said, thanks for supporting us on Patreon. Um, speaking <laughs> of which, <laughs> Patreon modifications, please consider donating to our Patreon. Money goes to paying for our equipment and podcast hosting fees, as well as paying producer Nick a just wage for all the work he does. Any money collected that goes beyond that will be donated to the missionaries of charity. If you are part of our $5 pastoral council tier or $10 church lady tier, you have a chance at having your chosen tweet talked about on the podcast. And like I said, this week's tweet comes from John, and it's a meme. It's a meme that you wanted to share. So apparently there's this, I think this is from Kung Fu Panda. Have you seen okay. this movie, Father Harrison? Yeah. Where there's like I don't a, know. I've seen parts of the movie. I've seen parts of the movie. Well, it's a meme going around. Okay. Uh, and it's just like this uh, cougar tiger thing that says, finally, a worthy opponent. Our battle will be legendary. And okay. this is directed at me. So the moon says nothing. <laughs> Father Anthony Shrava says, finally, a worthy opponent. Our battle will be legendary. So the moon <laughs> meme lives on. It does. It will not die. It, it, it cannot die yeah. until the moon until dies. Until the moon dies. That's why we need to blow up the moon. Because even if our reasons didn't make sense in the beginning now this meme will go on and go on until we actually blow yeah. up the moon for those who complain about the meme if you want it to go away blow up the moon yeah there you go it's that simple <laughs> so make thanks this john an ele- make this an election issue people yeah seriously go out there um so thanks john for supporting us now it's time for the long-awaited presbyteral exhortations and now it is time for Presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. Mm-hmm. I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn so much. It's my favorite part. It's the best part. Yes, quite. Man, it's just good to be presbyteral again, you know? Yes. Just to exhort exactly. the people. I mean, I can tell how much he twisted your mind that you even, that you struggled. 
you struggle to say presbyteral exhortations because he so manipulated you and clouded your mind with his laicism. <laughs> well, let's get one thing straight. You, I wait. almost I almost always have trouble saying presbyteral exhortations. It's our least catchy um, segment least catchy. title. Ever. It makes total sense in everything. In in the end, it does. Just, it yeah, does. It's, least, it's the least catchy. It's for no sure. summa theologica. Like that's beautiful. That's a that's a, a melodic phrase. Yeah, but presbyteral absolutely. exhortations it requires a significant amount of my brain power just to to pronounce and yeah. enunciate and to get across. Exactly. Cool. Ooh, Lord have mercy. Okay. So, <laughs> Father Harrison, it's Father time Anthony. to talk about what is commonly known as theology of the body. Yes. But you would like to call this something else, wouldn't you? Theology of the human person. Theology of the human person. So, why do you want to call it theology of the human person instead of theology because, of the because, body? Because theology of the body, which is a, a subset of the whole corpus of john paul ii's teaching mm -hmm. is not the be-all end-all of it all it it it, it sells books right yes it, it, it the title the titling sells books very easily uh but it's not it, it doesn't adequately summarize his project his project is to try to offer an adequate anthropology an adequate understanding of what it means to be human which includes the body, mm -hmm. and he does a fantastic job of, of helping rediscover the importance and centrality of the body in our theology of the human person. But the body is not we, are not, we are not just the body. Mm -hmm. There's more to being human than just being embodied. And so calling it theology of the body is, we can call it that for fun, whatever, because okay. it's easy to refer no, to. Let's do this. Don't let's worry. Let's, let's change but the culture, Father Harrison. Let's change We're going to be calling it the theology of the human person. You heard it? You heard it here, folks. When conferences in five years are being done on the theology of the human person, it's because we changed here at Clerically Speaking. Well, we're already we're already gonna get a footnote in all the textbooks when they talk about the tradening. So we're just exactly. we're just at the the forefront of, of all this. Amen. Um, so, but this thing we're talking about, theology of the human person, is this corpus, if you will, of writing. Yeah. You get that? Because corpus, it's body. Yes. See, yes, yes. 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 I'm, yes, I'm yes, really yes, proud yes. of that. I want to share. Okay. That, 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 that was nice. <laughs> This, you uh, even have notes today. I do. I have notes. I've got a book in front of me. Guys, listen to this book. You hear that? So many pages. But it's these writings from John Paul II, really his Wednesday audiences. So the Pope mm -hmm. on Wednesday gives a little catechesis, a little teaching. You know, you would hope the Pope would do some, some teaching. Well, this is what he does. And so in the 1980s, for about five years, Pope John Paul II had this program of writing about the theology of the human person. He had to take a break because he got shot that one time, and so he took a break to, you know, <laughs> get excuses, better. Excuses, excuses. Right? What a lazy Pope, that Saint Pope John Paul II. Um, and I think he also took another year break for something else. Um, but most of his teaching for like around five or so years was every Wednesday, going through the theology of the human person. And there's multiple reasons why. Uh, one mm -hmm. is that John Paul II, while he totally agreed with Humanae Vitae, which put the um, squash on contraception, he mm -hmm. didn't feel like the explanation was full enough. Right. So he's like, yeah, contraception is bad, but we need a deeper understanding of why it's bad. Right. So that's part of it. Another part of it is a response to the sexual revolution, um, mm -hmm. Another part of it is a just response against a lot of modernist philosophies. It's a response against Cartesian dualism, of super spiritualism, of 
disembodied anthropologies, all these things that communism was a big one too. Yeah, com- I mean, of course, yeah, right. communism. Big he, one he, too. he had fallen victim to communism, mm-hmm. so he and he and communism tried to portray a specific vision of the human person as a worker, and he says, no, that's not where that's not our primary identity. Yeah. So basically, there are a thousand different ways that our modern culture gets the human person wrong. Right. So he's like, let's go back to what divine revelation says about this and let's examine yeah. this so that's his whole cool. project he's working to do multiple different things but i think how he does it is that he simply tells a better story because right. this is a theology this is this yeah. is about revelation of course yeah. he uses philosophy and arguments throughout it but it's yeah. something you can't get to via human reason alone this right. is a theology a theological right. anthropology right so he begins unsurprisingly, with the words of Jesus. And he starts this whole thing off with quoting from Matthew chapter 19, 3 through 8. So this is, this is big, so I'm going to just read this. Some Pharisees came to him to test him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? He answered them, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator created them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and unite with his wife, and the two will be one flesh. So it is that they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined, let no man separate. They objected. Why then did Moses order to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus answered, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So this scripture is really the springboard for everything he's about to do. Mm-hmm. And I find it interesting because in the scripture, this begins with a question about divorce. Mm-hmm. So the Pharisees, maybe unbeknownst to them, are going toward, to Jesus with this idea that comes from broken and fallen humanity. And Jesus says as much, you know, this is because of the hardness of your hearts that you have allowed this. But to their minds, divorce was as normal and as licit and as lawful, and indeed it was in the Mosaic law, as anything else. Yeah. And it's kind of a mirror of our time now. Like these, like contraception, even abortion, um, a misunderstanding of the human body, all these things culturally for many, many people are ordinary Mm -hmm. it's the matter of fact that people don't feel the need to even explain them or justify them because this is just Mm -hmm. how it is so the pharisees go to him with this problem and he throws the whole thing on their on its head doesn't even just answer their question but points back to the beginning in the beginning it was not so so this is important okay so he's pointing back to the beginning Yes. And specifically to humanity before the fall. Mm-hmm. Father Harrison, can you guess why it's important that Jesus is pointing to humanity before the fall? Do you have any thoughts? Because it shows us God's original intent for the human person. Uh, God's original plan is shown there. So let's, let's, what God has done, let's look to it. Yes, exactly. So he's saying a lot of stuff happened after the fall, and we'll get to that and what it means for human yeah. beings. So. Yeah. Jesus, in his salvation, he does two different things for us. 
one, he restores our connection with God, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of idea where he's almost restoring us to that relationship before the fall. Mm-hmm. And then he's also elevating us to this new relationship where we are right. sons and daughters of God. Yeah. So it's it makes sense that he would point to the beginning because he's in a way going to bring us back to that state. Mm-hmm. Now it, it will get. He's, he's going to try. He, yeah. And he, he it's really interesting because even will admit he says this is an experience we have no human um, cor- corollary for it. Right. There, there's no. There's nothing that we can um, use to help us imagine what it was like to be prelapsarian. Yeah. So you can right? have the words and you can take you guesses have, at yeah. it, but we're yeah. like our whole being is affected by the fall. Yeah. So it's kind of like almost imagining a fourth dimension or something, or a fifth dimension yeah. or something like that. It's something just like that, yeah. it's kind of outside of our experience, and we can have we a can theory. have words. Yeah. But we don't. We did. We can't. Uh, we can never grasp it. It's kind of like talking about God in many ways. That like yeah. you have words that that express the truth of it all, but mm. we can never grasp it because we can't. We don't know it directly. Yeah. I want to do a quick quick tangent because yeah. What Jesus says here is important. Marriage for him. And when he, he does a quick answer to their question, um, why can't there be divorce? Because what God has united, let no man separate. <laughs> I screwed up right. my notes here. I said, what God divided, let no man separate. That doesn't make sense. No, what God has united, let no man separate. <laughs> and this is very hard for even Catholics and other Christians to understand. Yeah. This is why annulments are such a big deal. Yeah. Because there's this misunderstanding <laughs> that... We've talked about this, that the sacraments don't actually do anything or that God isn't actually active in the world when the church very Mm -hmm. much believes the sacraments do do something and God is active in the world. That when you get married, this is something that God does. And the church has no power to change that Mm -hmm. because our religion isn't this man-made hobby. We can't change these rules. There are some rules we can change, but not this stuff. So. Because Jesus said it, and we obey, we obey Jesus. Right, because that's kind of what we're about, this whole Jesus mm-hmm. thing, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why we can't just give out annulments willy-nilly, because one, it's not divorce. But two, is like, and this gets really difficult. So maybe I don't want to go too far into this tangent. Um, because the world is a broken, complicated place, and there are people through maybe no fault of their own who are in relationships that they need to break off, and maybe the annulment process doesn't work for them. And that's a wounded place to be in. But just understand where the church is coming from is that the sacrament is real and you can't change that thing. So I I figured we should talk about that just for a moment before we get into the first account of Genesis. So this is fun because today when we're recording, this was uh, part of the reading. Did you have mass yeah. yet, Father Harrison? I, I have it this evening, so. Okay, well, maybe you can, maybe you can get some, some, some uh, homily notes here. Nice. Okay. So the first account is from Genesis. So this is the, the seven days, the mm-hmm. account we're all familiar with. What's interesting is that this account was probably written later than the second account. So the Bible didn't fall from the sky, Father Harrison, did it? I'm pretty sure Jesus uh, wrote it all down <laughs> looking at some gold tablets. Oh, no. Oh, no. With Mary Magdalene uh, saying uh, that she witnessed the whole thing. Okay. So, assuming that that might not be correct, <laughs> the other theory is that 
These are inspired text. You know, that's why that's my fault for setting you up with such a like a gimme question. And I uh, it's my fault. Okay. So there's two accounts in Genesis, right, Father Harrison? Yes. The first one Possibly. we come The first one we come across was likely I don't think it's two accounts. I actually think it's one account. It's one okay. Um But that's that's my own personal biblical theory. Oh man. I don't I know what you're saying. I know what you're sorry. I shouldn't be debating this right I'm now. I'm getting into Go, this. Just, that's great. Okay, so the reason why I'm talking about this is because it's very likely that this account was written at the same time, maybe during the diaspora, I believe. So mm -hmm. the people of Israel would have been encountering many other creation myths. Because if you're right. a human being, you got a creation myth. You've got a theory, a philosophy about how the mm -hmm. world came to be. Even now, someone mm -hmm. who says they're an atheist or whatever, yeah. you know, you get a few drinks in them and they'll start talking to you about all kinds of crazy philosophies that they actually yeah. hold. Okay. Yeah. It's a human thing. Yeah. One of the popular ones was the, in in the area in the Near East was that basically this one god slayed a dragon. Mm -hmm. The dead body of that dragon is the earth. Yeah. Then that god made human beings out of dragon blood. This is the Mesopotamians, right? I think so, yeah. And yeah. then so the human being's job is to clean up the dead body of the dragon. That's what you do. That's what you do when you farm and build cities. Okay. Yeah. That's the gist of it, but that tells you so much about how they view the world. That right. the world is made out of violence. That and human chaos. beings are basically evil. Because no matter yeah. what Harry Potter or any other these garbage fantasy stories tell you, dragons are symbolically evil. They always have been. And whenever we yeah. use them for good, it drives me crazy because <laughs> symbols have power. That's a whole other story. Okay? Yeah. But basically, human beings are evil. They are mm -hmm. made on a world that is evil. Okay. Yeah. Contrast that idea with what God is doing in Genesis. He is creating and separating and ordering and there's time and there's place and there's reason yeah. to everything he's doing. And he says over and over again that it's good. But also as he's doing this, it's almost like he's setting up a stage as important and as beautiful as creation is. It isn't the point. Like, the right. earth and the oceans aren't the point. You get to this point in the creation where it seems as if God almost returns in on himself. He almost takes a step back and thinks to himself, okay, now it's time to make something new, to make human beings in it in... Um, our image and likeness. Yeah, to make human beings in our image and likeness. And that's what he does. Yeah. So he creates human beings and... Not only does he create them, but he also gives them, uh, enters into relationship with them. He gives human beings an order. He says, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this, this two things going on. One, that human beings are very much related to the world. But also we're above the world as well. Right. We're closer to God than we are to the things of the world. Right. I've been thinking about this, especially today, and actually as I was preaching, that this idea that humanity is kind of the point of creation, and really it's, it's going to be Christ that's the point of creation, but you need humanity for that, for the incarnation, I think. We've lost the idea that there is a story going on, that right. there is a purpose. Yeah. And so you have a world where we feel very much lost, that we are no better than the fish or the apes or anything else. 
And there's something in the human heart that realizes this is wrong. And I think this is the cause of a lot of depression, anxiety, confusion in the world, anger. Um, a lot of the more militant and zealous parts of conservation efforts. Now we should right. obviously care for, but the part that says like human beings are evil and should be extinguished from the earth. Yeah. It's like, no, 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 no. The earth is for us. Like we need yeah. to take better care of it because that's our duty, but it's yeah. for us. Have you seen uh, First Reformed? No. You should check it out. It's It plays on that whole story and, and idea. It's about a pastor who's kind of losing his faith and meaning and sense of meaning and so actually turns towards environmental extremism oh really that's interesting yeah yeah sorry little side no i liked it it helped me find my place in my notes oh, good. <laughs> what would you do without me i don't know would, would, would nick help you get your place in notes um probably i nick could totally just make some just start talking if he that's needed true. to he is good yeah so okay yeah. um so what what how what does John Paul have to say with all this? So this is the objective part of creation. So right. we'll get more or the in, cosmic, right? Yeah, this is the cosmic. This is the this is how things kind of are. And it's important to understand that this narrative is not so much telling you how things literally came to be. Right. It's more telling you how things are now. So this right. is our relationship with the world. This is our relationship with God. This is yeah. um, how we enter into this process of understanding that. He gets really more in depth and more of the the good stuff more in the second account. Mm -hmm. Because in the second account is going to be the more subjective stuff. Okay. Would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, to an extent, but there's still something really key in the the first account, right? Sure, yeah, tell me. Isn't it? No, maybe I'm getting my creation stories mixed up because I don't have my Bible in front of me right now. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to be a good Catholic and just kind of go off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, Does not God say in the first account, uh, let us let us make man in our image? Yes, he does say that. Right. What is that? That John Paul really kind of breaks that open, doesn't he? The new thing John Paul II is doing, mm-hmm. I don't think is actually new. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people's critiques about theology of the body is that, oh, where is this in the church fathers? Theology of the human person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> where is this in the church fathers? Or like, this is a new yeah. thing he made up. And it's really not in the sense that he's just drawing from scripture. Right. You think that's fair? Yeah, yeah. I, I would. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, but to understand the traditional understanding of human beings made in the image and likeness of God, right. um, the church fathers saw that as primarily intellect and will. Spirit, intellect, and will. Yeah. Yeah. Spirit, intellect, yeah. and will. Or right. also like our ability to create or something like that. It was, yeah. it was those aspects of us that made us like God. It was a, it was the image of God was found solely in the soul. Right. The fancy thing that John Paul II does is it's also found in the human body. Right. And most especially in both of the human bodies. Right. Male and female. Mm-hmm. And this is another important thing. So I might switch this because it's just easier just to refer to the universal man because it's just a shorter mm-hmm. word. And I'm not trying to make any sort of like patriarchal statement it's just easier yeah. Um, yeah. but the idea is that it takes both male and female to properly image God right? and they do that most perfectly in the conjugal act in becoming one okay. flesh where they right. image the trinity Okay. but I don't want to get to that yet I want to save that for another podcast this is kind of just to right. set things up right but yeah like he, he talks about this whole um, 
first it's, it's the it's the let us right of that language of God that it's Trinitarian right and so that this that man by his nature in his whole creative action because God creates the body and the soul it therefore means that even within the context of the body yes the soul absolutely but then the body itself becomes an expression of God's image in the concrete world that we are kind of the sign bearers of God to the world this is why we are the height of creation Mm -hmm. because we are meant to be kind of the mediators of God's presence to the whole world um we are, in a way, quote-unquote, gods of the world, in a way. Right? Well, yeah, in a sense, humanity itself is a priesthood. Mm-hmm. We are the bridge between the created world and yeah. um, the spiritual world. So the, the, yeah. the material the world. world. Yeah, physical yeah, and spiritual. Yeah. We, yeah. we are that bridge. And you see in the setup of humanity in the garden is that we give glory to God by mm-hmm. taking care of the garden. And since we're, right. we're lifting up this creation to God. Yeah. And that's important because that means that God loves us enough to be in relationship to us. Yeah. Like, so birds <laughs> aren't in relationship to God the same way we are. No. They just do what they do. Mm-hmm. So God never tells them, go act like birds. Right. God has to give us a command because we right. can say yes or no to it. Exactly. It's a contract it's a relationship and contract doesn't sound like super loving and fluffy so it's maybe not you know the best but this is this is entering into in this language of this myth it's entering mm-hmm. into relationship with us yeah with our body so yeah but yeah like this is one of his major contributions right here is to say it's that the whole human person in in its communion of in the communion of of purpose a person's in the complementary of the sexes uh male and females male and female, mm-hmm. that we are actually imaging the Trinity. That the Trinity image is not individualistic and it's not just within the sense of the soul, but it's actually in the communion of persons itself. It's in the... He, he's kind of rediscovering, as was a big uh, venture of 20th century Catholic theology, the social element of what it means to be human. That we're not atomized individuals yes. that who are just separate from each other, but actually that we actually have, we actually do share a common humanity because this is so important for redemption because if you don't have a common identity of our humanity, that we all actually share that one humanity and that when Christ enters that humanity, he's actually kind of changing it from within, then redemption doesn't actually make sense. Right. Yeah. Right? So he, this is, this is like, these might seem like almost obscure things to be talking about, but it's actually, he's trying to undermine the modern idea of what it means to be human, which is atomized and individualistic to the point that there's no sense of communion. But because if you understand man that way, and you try to speak the gospel to that, no one's going to be able to understand the gospel because it literally makes no sense in that context. You have to rediscover, even on the natural realm, the, the commu- uh, complementarity of the sexes and the communion of persons so that Christ's redemption actually makes sense and his entering into our condition actually makes sense. And it, it's going to open up a lot of pathways uh, going forward in this. Right. So it doesn't matter how much of an introvert you think you are. You don't yeah. make sense by yourself. Exactly. You're not saved by yourself. You're not even a human being really by yourself. Right. The idea is that we are, how do I want to put it? A community. Yeah. And also, if we're you, a communion. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Communion. Yeah, it is a good Catholic sounding word. <coughs> um, and also to understand in this biblical account, like if you read scripture and read Revelation and the church's tradition, which is Revelation fairly, you 
you see so many things that are healing for the conflicts that we have today. So mm-hmm. in that first account, male and female, he created them. It's very matter of fact. He doesn't place one above the other. They are both equal in dignity. Without the other, the one doesn't make sense. So you have that, even from the very beginning, this ancient tradition that, yeah, God made man and woman in his image and likeness, and they're equal yeah. in that. Yeah. And that's the other thing, is that there is an equality mm-hmm. between man and women in all this. I mean, there's going to be a lot going forward, what he does with all this, because he actually even helps really rediscover it, it, what it's doing is it's actually lifting women up, mm-hmm. right? Where people say, oh, the Catholic Church hates women. Well, I'm like, no, no, no. Read, read his theology of the human person. You see the dignity he places in the context of what it means to be woman Yeah. in all this. And far more uh, than any other tradition or yeah. faith or anything, I would say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So every once in a while, we're going to dive back into this. This is just kind of set you up and get a little bit of a taste for it because... The reason why we want to take our time with this is because Father Harris and I were discussing, this is really medicine and healing for so much that is going on. It gives yeah. a full and a better answer to the questions um, surrounding sex and gender, uh, transgender, um, sexual attraction, all that stuff, but also like who you nature are. Nature of marriage. Nature of marriage, are. right? Who you are in the world, um, how you experience the world and God. Yeah. This, because right now we are so confused about yeah. who we are. We've, you know, yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Once you lose God, you begin to lose who you are. Because really, mm-hmm. all of this is setting up, because all of this is really about Jesus Christ. Yeah. Because it is Jesus Christ who is embodied, who reveals humanity to itself. Yeah. You know, ultimately, exactly. we don't make sense and we can't understand ourselves until Jesus Christ becomes incarnate. So all yeah. this is going to be Christ-centered, but we're kind of setting the stage for all this. Yeah. So what? What can you give like an overview of kind of the general direction he's going to take of the whole project? Yeah. So basically, he's going to go Before. very in-depth into that second creation account and yeah. is going to like pick it apart piece by – well, I will not say pick it apart, but like opening it up piece by piece yeah. where yeah. you've got the creation of man. And so you yeah. have humanity by itself. What does it mean to be – just humanity by itself, original solitude in the face of God. What does mm-hmm. that tell us about God? What does that tell us about ourself? Then we've got humanity, man and woman, and how that makes sense, and how this communion of persons, this uh, original communion, teaches us about ourselves. And then from then, we go to um, this state of original innocence, just talking about this prelapsarian, who we are meant to be. Then the effects of the fall, what the fall does to us, and how that changes our relationship with God, changes our relationship with the world, changes our relationship with between man and woman. And then the redemption in Christ and how that heals us but opens up even new avenues. Uh, avenues, and we will be able to talk about celibacy then um, mm-hmm. and understand other things, uh, things like uh, Christ has revealed to us. So that's in general the story. Ah, speaking of human persons... There's a new human person in the world, isn't there? Yeah. We, we mentioned it last episode, but we still want to just say nice things about Tommy Ty, don't we? Because he's so great. Yeah. I think actually, yeah. I mean, yeah we actually tried to get his, uh, what's his baby's name? Charlie. Charlie, yeah. We wanted to have Charlie on the podcast this week, but he's busy. 
being yeah. a baby. So yeah. we can't have Charlie. We can't have Tommy Ty on the podcast this week. We're going to try to get them hopefully next week. Does that sound like a plan? Sounds like a plan. <laughs> okay. Hey, guys, please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies as well, because Jesus says we should love our enemies. You can find me at Father Sharapa on Twitter. You can find me at FR Harrison. You can contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Peace. God bless.